When Estella heard her newborn child let out a small but powerful cry shortly after the doctor had pulled him from her womb, she then knew that all was right with the world. The umbilical cord was cut, the shivering baby boy was cleaned off and swaddled in a comfy hospital-issued baby blanket and was placed into her waiting arms. Exhausted, but with her heart never having been more full, she gazes down at her little miracle and kisses him gently on the forehead. I love you, Mio, she whispers in his tiny ear and places the little bundle upon her chest. She could feel his little heart pumping furiously. She was in love instantly, a love unlike any she had ever felt. Fred paces nervously in the waiting room, wearing a path into the tiled floor of the hospital. He looks at his watch, with time seeming to stand still. He thinks to himself, what is taking so long? Fred's parents, sitting calmly along with him in the waiting room, can sense their son's angst, and they comfort him, advising him. These things take time. Everything is fine. Finally, the double doors of the maternity ward open, and the doctor approaches the waiting family. He announces to all of them, congratulations, your wife is fine, and you have a healthy, beautiful baby boy. Fred's eyes well up with tears, and he's immediately filled with feelings of great pride and joy. He grabs both of his parents and pulls them in towards himself, wrapping his arms around them both. I have a son, he declares to them. I have a son. All of their heads gently come together as they remain in the group hug collectively, celebrating this once-in-a-lifetime moment. You can only experience the feeling of bringing your first child into the world one time. Don't get me wrong here. The birth of every subsequent child feels magnificent, yet it's different. Maybe it's because you've already experienced it and we become accustomed to things, big and small, as human beings. Maybe it's because you are aware of all the sleepless nights that await you in the very near future. Maybe it's because of the endless possibilities that you imagined for your first child when they were born don't seem quite as endless now as the reality of raising another child has taken hold. Maybe it's because you feel the financial pressure of providing for another little human. Maybe it's all of these things. Maybe it's none of them. But one thing is for certain, not worse nor better, just different. But on this day, Fred has never felt more alive. When can I see him? The doctor tells him soon, very soon. When Fred finally gets his hands on his baby boy, a tremendous smile stretches across his face and it remains plastered there. He can honestly not recall a time in his life that he had felt such great joy and tears once again begin to flow. My heart has never been so full, he thinks to himself. He holds his child out in front of him, arms extended, and inspects every inch of his perfect little face. My boy, my boy, I'm your daddy, and I love you more than you'll ever know. He hands his son back to the waiting nurse, who gently places him in the waiting bassinet. Fred is finally told that he can see his wife as she is out of recovery. He anxiously walks through the seemingly endless halls of the hospital until he reaches Estella's room. 
She looks beyond exhausted, but more beautiful than she's ever looked. Estella has her baby cradled in her arms. He's crying again as he walks towards his wife and child and gently takes Estella's face in his two hands and kisses her. Thank you, my love. Thank you. He's perfect. They have decided that they will name him Anthony. Victims, Darren and I have made it incumbent upon ourselves in our podcast to acknowledge and memorialize the victims of the horrendous cases that we've covered. We've discussed how it is not only the victims of the crimes themselves, but also everyone that that person has touched throughout the entirety of their lives, of course, to varying degrees. We open this episode with the birth of Anthony Garcia, not to invoke sympathy for him, but instead to plant the seed in your mind that Garcia has people that love him deeply. Imagine, if you will, the child you've loved from the moment they've joined you here on this planet, the child that you have all of the hopes and dreams for, all that you can muster, the possibilities are endless, the child that will carry your name, that will hopefully provide you with grandchildren to keep your lineage going, the child that can potentially change the world. We all experience these thoughts and feelings as parents. Just imagine that your pride and joy has just been arrested for murdering four innocent people over a five-year period. As hard as you try, you will never be able to truly understand the depths of just how devastating this must have been for those two people. Sure, I've been in close proximity to it as I represented Anthony and came to know this wonderful, loving family. But even with that, I can't possibly know. What I do know is that every time I was in a room with Estella Garcia, that I could see the heartbreak, the crushing disappointment, the horror, the fear, the disbelief, the anguish, all of it in her eyes. And I just wanted to go and hug her and tell her that it was going to be okay, even though I knew that it very well might not be. I wanted desperately to give her some type of relief, some type of hope, because it was beyond both her and Fred's comprehension that their son, their firstborn child, could have done these things that he has been accused of. Yet, for three years, as this case played out, they tried to do the impossible, which is to live a normal life again. Now, when every single person that you know, and I mean every single person, is aware of what your son has been accused of, it is only those that are in the very, very inner circle that may provide a shoulder to cry on. Everyone else, quite simply, they don't know what to say to you. Because what is there to say? During the course of this season, you will not be hearing about how Fred was an abusive, raging alcoholic who tortured his son physically, mentally, and emotionally, because he wasn't, ever. There will be no stories of love being withheld from Anthony by his mother, because she adored him, and Anthony felt it in his bones. Now, Fred and Estella Garcia are just two incredibly hardworking people that provided all three of their children with an incredibly stable, middle-class upbringing and who loved each of their three children fiercely. 
This one just doesn't make sense. None of the telltale signs existed, at least not outwardly. So at the conclusion of this season, no matter where you land after you've heard all of the evidence as to Anthony Garcia's guilt or innocence, know this much is true, uncontrovertibly, that Fred and Estella Garcia are absolutely victims in a much different way than both the Hunter and the Sherman families, but they are victims nonetheless, either of the criminal justice system, if justice was not served, and an innocent man sits in prison, or of the murderous rage that possessed their firstborn son. And justice was in fact served because they must somehow come to grips and try to live with the fact that their son is a killer. I've said it once, and I'll say it again. Life is brutal. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode six. Reflection of a recollection. We left off the autopsies of both Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman having been performed. The cause of death is, of course, no surprise. However, the location of the wounds have left both Moise and her out, thinking that the killer had a rather firm grasp on human anatomy. As those two men were detained at the county morgue, the crime scene lab techs continued to process the scene, and Officer Yetz taking a second look to see what she could see. Her discovery of the pocket knife in Shirley Sherman's pocket, coupled with the knowledge that she had learned from Shirley's son Jeff about his sister's boyfriend and Shirley's apparent beef with him, which may have led to an order of protection against him, has Yetz thinking that the boyfriend is definitely someone that needs to be spoken to. That's victimology at work. Now, as a bit of an aside, if you're wondering why we are not naming Shirley's daughter's boyfriend in the pod, we will explain it in more detail later in the season. But for now, just know that when we are referencing the boyfriend, it's Shirley's daughter's boyfriend that we are talking about. The eyes and ears of the Dundee neighborhood have sat with a composite artist and have done their best to recollect what the stranger looked like and the artist has done his best to create an image that reflects what all the witnesses have described. So now you're all caught up, so let's dig in. By March 15th, the first Saturday after the slangs at the Hunter home, Omaha PD is well aware of just how much unrest is circulating in and around Omaha. The chief of police knows that a statement must be released in order to attempt to calm the collective nerves of the community. They now have a composite sketch in hand, which will soon be distributed to all media, both print and TV, by the early evening. Now, like most communities in and around our country, in Omaha, the community policing tip line was called Crime Stoppers, and the number for the hotline would be listed at the end of every article and at the end of every news broadcast that took place. Soon thereafter, a press conference was scheduled for late in the afternoon, and this information was disseminated to all of the press. Now, law enforcement at this juncture doesn't have a ton to go on, 
And if they're being completely transparent, they certainly could not say in good conscience what they ended up telling the greater Omaha area, which was that they believed that the residents need not be afraid, as they believed it was an isolated incident. And it was also at this time that they first disclosed to the public the names of the victims. Now, this would be the first time the public would learn of just exactly who had been involved in the tragic killings. And as far as this being an isolated incident, this was simply something that they did not know at this point. It was gross speculation at best. And in light of the fact that there was a large contingent of Omaha Police Department that were working both the Joy Blanchard murder as well as the Hunter murders, and because of the similar MOs of both the crimes, many believed that it could very well be the same killer that had committed both of these heinous crimes. But the reality is that law enforcement realizes that to say anything even remotely close to this would serve no purpose other than to create more unease within the minds of its residents. As the media at large begins disseminating the information to the public, namely the composite sketch, the hotline number for Crime Stoppers begins ringing and ringing and ringing. Now, think about any time that you've looked at a composite sketch on either the news or Dateline or America's Most Wanted. And now think back to the conversations that are taking place within your living room or bed or wherever you're watching your TV. Almost instinctually, you're racking your brain thinking, who the hell do I know that looks like that? We all do it all the time. Now, attach a healthy $25,000 reward to it. And this reward would eventually reach in excess of $50,000. And just imagine how many people are going to be calling that hotline who possess nothing more than a name of a person that bears a slight resemblance to the sketch. Once a tip line is called, at least in Omaha, the tips are all taken extremely seriously. And I know this for a fact, because as the defense attorney for Garcia, I read through hundreds and hundreds of pages of these tips that had been followed up by Omaha PD. Now, Omaha PD is by no means a tiny department, but they're not massive by any stretch either. And like most police departments, they have a budget, which is strictly adhered to. So as these tips continue to roll in, and they are investigated, which includes a call back to the original caller, unless it was made anonymously, in order to ascertain whether that person has contact information for the person that the caller believes matches the composite. If the caller doesn't possess that information, and the person that has been identified has never been arrested previously, the search for this person's identity and location can often be an arduous process. Being that law enforcement is relying heavily on the public to help them pinpoint a suspect, the investigation into the tips oftentimes resulted in much more than a couple of phone calls being made. It often resulted in the tracking down of, and then in-person interviews with these individuals. Now, as you can imagine, this process was very, very time consuming. Couple this with the fact that the more remote in time it is from the commission of the crime, the more difficult it becomes for law enforcement to solve the case. Time is of the essence. And as we have discussed, cops are people just like the rest of us. And with that comes all the thoughts and feelings 
and emotions that we all experience on a daily basis. So when tip after tip turns out to be nothing more than a boy who cries wolf situation, it is a natural instinct for those fielding those tips to become more and more skeptical. Now, would this result in Omaha PD overlooking a tip that could potentially save lives down the road? Well, let's take a look and see. It's now the morning of March 17th, 2008, and a tip has been called into the Crime Stoppers hotline. The caller is a woman named Angela, and she works as the coordinator of the Creighton University Graduate Medical Education Office. She states in her message that the thought has occurred to her based on the fact that Tom Hunter's father, Bill, was an employee of the university, specifically the forensic pathology department, that there could possibly be a former disgruntled student who may be responsible. Accordingly, she dug in and compiled a list of former students of the medical school that may have had a beef. Now, having a beef and having a murderous beef are two entirely separate things, but she decided that it was something that was worth looking into. So, she did. If you're not familiar with Omaha, Nebraska, don't fear. I wasn't either prior to the case. And if you are, I hope that I do it justice. As over the three years that I worked there, I grew very fond of the town, in spite of their distaste for us, exclusively based on the fact that we represented a man that they in large part considered to be a murderer, and more specifically, a child killer. Omaha, Nebraska is home to approximately a half a million people. It lies directly west of the border of Iowa. There are four Fortune 500 companies that call it home, including Berkshire Hathaway, Mutual of Omaha, yes, for you boomers out there, the very same Mutual of Omaha that sponsored Wild Kingdom and Union Pacific Railroad, as well as TD Ameritrade. It's also home to the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, who is one of the most powerful and influential businessmen in the world. And at its heart, it's a college town. Creighton University sits right in the center of the city. It hosts the College World Series every year. And believe me when I tell you this, Creighton University is very much a large part of the DNA of Omaha. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here, but it is such a large part of the fabric of Omaha that due to the fact that the police and the state would soon form the opinion that the link between both sets of killings was Creighton, that they would later refer to the case as the Creighton killings. And that was challenging for us as out-of-state lawyers because it made it extremely difficult for us to find local attorneys to sponsor us so that we could try the case because everyone seemed to have some type of connection to the university. Now, I'll get into this in much greater detail down the road, but for now, just know that this is a wealthy, influential, and educated city. So when Angela called from Creighton about a potential lead, it was taken seriously. Sergeant Mike Watson thought enough of the potential of this lead that he directs both officers Eugene Watson and the aforementioned Detective Linda Yetz to head over to Creighton and see just exactly what Angela had dug up. Yetz picks up the phone and calls Angela, and they set an appointment for later that day for both Yetz and Watson to head over to collect the info. And here's a pause for a worthy cause. Hey, D. 
Bob. What's up, man? I'm cold. Hey, uh, yeah, me too. It's cold down here in the dungeon. It is. Hey, do you like a uh, good whodunit? Whodunit? Whodunit. Who don't like a whodunit, Bob? I mean, not anyone that listens to true crime. For sure. You know what I mean? I do. I mean, I was that kid when I was young that was reading all the Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes books. Like, and I'm talking like a nerd, straight up nerd in, you know, the library, my freshman year of high school. Literally, I'd sit there and read all the Agatha Christie books because, you know why? I love a whodunit. I, was, I also was a kid when I was young. Hey, well, that's amazing. Thanks, bud. <laughs> and it seems like something that is natural. Progression of things. Progression of things. Thank you. So, uh... If you do love a whodunit, there's this awesome new game that I ran into. What's it called? Oh, thank you for asking. It's called June's Journey. June's Journey? June's Journey. Okay. And in this game, what you are doing is you are playing this young detective, an amateur detective named June Parker. And what she's doing is investigating a series of mysteries, which are full of twists and turns around every corner, man. What do you think of that? I think that's um, pretty exciting, yeah. enticing even. It is enticing, and, and it's pretty cool. It's um, basically what you're doing is you're using your powers of observation, and you're putting those to the test, all right? And you're sharpening your sleuthing skills. You're figuring stuff out, man. You're trying to crack cases, which we love to do. To detect. We do. We love to detect, and we love to crack the case. When I first played this game, man, I, I really enjoyed it. Basically, you fire it up, and they kind of introduce you to June, and they... What's June like? She's sweet. She seems like a really bright, smart lady, you know? She seems like she's really ready to crack some cases, man. She's so, a case cracker. She is a case cracker. And, and essentially what you're doing when you're assisting her in, uh, you know, cracking the case is that they will give you a particular scene. And within that scene, they will tell you various objects that you have to try to uh, locate that are hidden within these different pictures. And like the art's really beautiful. Like they're, they're really, like the graphics on it are kind of off the hook. Like, I, you know, I, I've played some of these games in the past and this one was like really nice to look at, you know? And, and like the, the details in the, in the pictures are so like graphic that it can be tough to find certain objects in there because they're pretty well hidden. It's kind of like that whole, they're, they're hidden in plain sight type thing. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. I mean, they're right there for you, but they're not that easy to find. So as you go through collecting these clues and you collect these clues, which are different objects within each particular picture frame. And as you gather those, they start giving you hints that go towards solving the overall mystery. And, and every scene that you're looking at is, relates to the overall mystery. So it's not just a random picture, you know, where they're hiding some objects. It's going to be a picture that fits within the narrative of whatever case you're trying to crack with June Parker. So look, man, if you're craving a good mystery or you just got to get away from it all for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. So, you know, what I would do be... I was going to go to Europe, but maybe instead I'll go to June's journey. You know what? Listen, like you can do both. Like while you're on that flight Solid to Europe... Point. <laughs> Solid point. You fire up June's journey, dude. That's you what Blast you do. a couple of those boards down, you know? Yeah, dude. Like, I mean, you can kill probably four hours easy playing June's journey. So like if I were you on your next trip to Europe, download the app and start playing. And it's really cool, you know, because like... And it's kind of a period piece. So like I was telling you, I, I used to read Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes like this. So this was right up my alley because it's set in kind of the roaring 20s. You know? So it's definitely kind of a period piece. 
And, you know, so go download the game, get your search on, find the clues, solve the mysteries. And every week, they're always going to give you a new chapter. So it's like the game never gets stale. So like after you crush the last case, you can look forward to the next week when they're going to give you the new case. Nothing worse than stale crackers, you know? I mean, stale crackers are the worst, dude. So look, D, this game is awesome. I had a ton of fun playing it. Uh, you know, there's not many games that I'll, at this point in my life, that I can kind of like dedicate a lot of time to. This happens to be one of those games that I could play for hours at a time. I can't impress upon you enough. If you guys need to kill some time, you know, well, you're in between episodes of Defense Diaries. I can't think of a better way than to play June's Journey. So download the app, jump in, get a new adventure every week. So look, man, there is a detective in all of us. You need to go and find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Do it now. At about 1.30 p.m., Yetz and Watson park their cruiser and walk into the administrative offices of the medical school. When they arrive, they're greeted by Angela, who immediately asks if a doctor named Cecile can sit in as well, because she might have something to offer with regards to the students that they'll be discussing. Yetz was more than happy to have the doctor join in. Now, I can imagine these two women calling each other when the story broke, and it was revealed that Bill Hunter's son was one of the victims, with both of them coming to the conclusion that the killer could very well be somebody who was pissed off at Creighton, and specifically at Bill Hunter. So they decided over the weekend that Angela would go in and pull the files of the students that they collectively compiled for the police to look into. Now, at this point in time, they had no idea just how hard they had hit the nail on the head as far as the motive that the state would ultimately land on. The question is, would the cops in 2008 reach the same conclusion? Also, keep in mind that it was the very same Linda Yetz who had had the conversation with Jeff Sherman, Shirley's son, about his sister's boyfriend being a guy that might have a serious grudge with Shirley and would have reason to know that Shirley would be at the hunter's home. Further, don't forget that it was Yetz who discovered the knife that Shirley was carrying in her jacket pocket for protection, and Yetz was assuming that it was the boyfriend that she was protecting herself from. Now, I can't be sure exactly of what the state of Yetz's mind was, but one thing is for certain, and that is that until she can clear that boyfriend, he will remain the guy that she is most interested in looking at very, very closely. How this would ultimately affect the effort she puts into the leads that she is about to receive is yet to be determined. But we will get there, I promise. So Yetz and Watson follow the doctor to her office and they both take a seat with Angela flanking the doctor who is seated at her desk. Meanwhile, we will take a step back a couple of days, back to the day of the murders. And this is being done intentionally because as far as the narrative goes, we felt that it's important for you to have heard the interview between Yetz and Jeff Sherman prior to examining the initial interview between Harout and Kelly. That interview took place the night of the murders as Harout was charged with the unenviable task of informing Kelly that her mother had been killed earlier in the day. So Harout and another officer arrive at Kelly's house, which is located on the same street as her mother's house. The hour is late, 
so Harout has no idea if Kelly will answer the door. He rings the bell, and she in fact does answer. Harout verifies that she is in fact Kelly, Shirley's daughter, which she does. Harout looks at her, purses his lips together, clears his throat, and begins. Miss Wedgwood, I'm very sorry to have to report to you that your mother has been positively identified as the victim of a homicide that took place earlier today. Kelly, immediately upon hearing the news, bursts into tears and begins sobbing. Harout does his best to console her, but at this moment in time, she is inconsolable. Unfortunately, Harout still needs to try and extract some information from her. He gives her some time to catch her breath, and he waits for a break in her appropriate and emotional response to the news, which is a tricky proposition. Eventually, Kelly seems to get to the point where she may be able to hold a brief conversation. So Harout gently asks her if she is aware of anyone that may have wanted to harm her mother. She immediately says she has no idea. She then tells Harout that she has been home all night with her daughter and that she has had no contact with her mother all day. She further advises him that her mother is not currently involved romantically with anyone and again tells Harout that she has no idea who would want to hurt her mother. Now, while he was talking to her, Harout confirms that her mother was in fact the hunter's cleaning person. She also verifies that she had helped her mother clean the hunter's home on several occasions, but that she hasn't heard of her mother having any issues with any of the hunters, and further, that she had not heard from her mother that there were any creeps that had been skulking around the neighborhood recently. Well, not of course including today. Harout craftily circles back to the subject of Kelly's boyfriend. Harout informs her that he is aware that her boyfriend has been named as a suspect in several destruction of property and domestic violence incidents. Kelly tells Harout that she doesn't believe that her boyfriend should be a suspect in her mother's murder and that any domestic related issues with her boyfriend had been directed at her, not at her mother. Kelly then asks Harout if he can do a death notification with her grandmother, who lives in Bellevue, Nebraska. Kelly tells him that she can't answer any more questions right now. She's just too upset. Harout tells her that he completely understands, but informs her that they will be reaching out to her again with any other questions that they may need answered. The next time that Harout sees Kelly will be at her mother's funeral. Back at Creighton, the doctor and Angela have been giving Yetz the names of the people they believe the cops should look into. She first gives her the name Lou, who was an Asian male whose contract had not been renewed by the university due to the communication issues related to Lou's grasp, or lack thereof, of the English language. She explains to Yetz that the red flag for her was that Lou did not appeal the notice of non-renewal which is highly unusual, as a vast majority of the residents that don't get their contracts renewed appeal the decision. The fact that Lou didn't immediately appeal made her suspicious of him. Now, I could see that Angela is a bit of a home sleuth. I'd be willing to bet that she watches a lot of true crime docs. And the fact of the matter is that once she landed on the concept that the killer could have been targeting Bill Hunter by way of killing his son, 
Lou's name came immediately to mind. Not necessarily for anything that he did while he was at the program, but instead because of what he didn't do, which is appeal the non-renewal, which almost everyone does. So in her mind, that would seem to be something that a killer may do so as to keep his name off the radar, so to speak. Yetz notes the name, and Angela continues. She then names a former resident named Brian, who had been terminated from the pathology department back in 2001. She didn't have any further information on Brian. Now, again, in order to protect certain people's privacy, as we move along in the case, we will often refer to them only by their first name or by a relationship status to a person who is named in the pod, such as Kelly's boyfriend. Yetz shots down his name as well. At this point, two people in, Yetz isn't feeling the Creighton angle. She can't imagine that either of these first two guys would be so upset about losing a job that they would come back years later to seek their revenge on Bill Hunter by killing his son. It just doesn't fit. It's a far too aggressive response to the fact that they were terminated by the program. Yes, of course, keeps this to herself. And Angela continues. The next name she gives is Anthony Garcia. Now, if you just said, wait, what? Well, give yourself a pat on the back because you're paying attention. And yes, this is the same Anthony Garcia, my client. We will get into this more just a tad bit down the road in the season. But I can only imagine what Angela was doing and saying when she first saw the news reports that Garcia had been arrested some five years later after this interview took place. And that's something like screaming at the TV and saying, I fucking knew it. I told them. I gave them his name. They had him. And if Garcia is the guy, she is 100% correct. Reminds me a lot of another case that we covered on Defense Diaries and another police department that shit the bed. But I digress. She goes on to tell Yetz that Garcia had been terminated along with Brian back in 2001. She also tells Yetz that Garcia was originally from California and that he was in the forensic pathology department and that Bill Hunter had been the program director back then. Yetz takes down the info then looks back up at Angela, indicating that she's ready for more. The next name she gives is that of Michael Belenke. She informs Yetz that Belenke was originally from Russia by way of Vancouver, Canada. Belenke had made her list because there had been several complaints made by female medical students during his time in the pathology program. Now this guy, he piques Yetz's interest quite a bit. She draws a little star by his name on her pad, indicating, yeah, we should look into this guy. Angela names one more student from the pathology department named Dan. She explains that he was dismissed from the program because it was suspected that he had been abusing drugs while in the program. She tells Yetz that Hunter was the program director at the time that he was terminated as well. That's all I have, Angela tells him. Yetz and Watson both stand and thank the ladies and terminate the interview. But as Yetz is walking out of the office, she turns back around, Columbo-style, and she asks both of the women who she should contact about vehicle decal information for faculty and students. 
Angela tells her to go see Martin, the security director for the hospital. Yetz thanks her again, and they make their way to Martin's office. Once there, Yetz asks Martin if he'd mind answering a few questions. Martin, of course, is more than happy to help in any way that he can. Yetz tells him, what I'm looking for is the vehicle information for the following former students that were all terminated from the pathology program over the past 10 years. Martin takes in a short breath through his teeth, which makes a hissing sound. <sighs> yeah. Here's the thing, detective. The decals, see, they're referenced by the name of the students or the faculty member, not the vehicle they were driving. We switched over to the decal system back in 1996, and we used the names only because it was too difficult to maintain the vehicle descriptions in the computer files. She thanks Martin and terminates the interview. Meanwhile, at about 4.45 on March 17th, Kelly's boyfriend walks in through the front door of the Omaha police station. No, not because he's an amazingly solid citizen who was coming in to offer himself up to be questioned by the authorities, but instead because the cops had called him and told him he needed to come in to be interviewed about the murders of Shirley Sherman and Thomas Hunter. Now, I want to discuss this approach by Omaha PD just a little bit. And I'm specifically talking about calling and requesting the boyfriend to come in and talk to them voluntarily, as opposed to them going to him and potentially catching him off guard. Now, remember that the cops had talked to Kelly on the evening that her mother was murdered. They certainly brought up his name during the course of that conversation. What do you think the odds are that Kelly didn't tell him that the cops were asking about him in regards to her mom's murder? That's right, zero. There is no chance that conversation didn't take place. So the boyfriend, while inconvenienced and irritated, because let's face it, no one likes being grilled by the cops because, well, it's not fun. He will certainly not be taken by surprise with them showing up. You know who else figures that this exact thing took place? Of course, the cops. So what makes more sense for them, what they can take more from in terms of his response and actions is if they give him the opportunity to come in on his own accord. Three days have passed, and it's assumed that Kelly told him that they'd been asking about him. That would give him plenty of time to say, lawyer up, or maybe even flee the jurisdiction. So no, they are giving him every opportunity to show up and talk. If he doesn't show up, and they can't reach him by phone or by showing up at his place, they will immediately assume that they are onto something. And this is despite the fact that a review of his mugshot from prior arrests make it pretty clear that this guy doesn't match the description of the stranger. But there are so many other red flags that he warrants a very close look. If the guy shows up with a lawyer and refuses to be questioned, they will take the same thing away from that scenario, which is that he has something to hide. Now, I can tell you that this train of thought by the cops in general is way off. And that's because I always advise my clients or even potential clients that under no circumstances are they to speak with the cops without an attorney present, regardless of whether or not they are claiming they are completely innocent. It's one thing to be questioned by police if you happen to approach them as a potential witness to a crime. It's another thing altogether if they are looking to talk to you. In that situation, if they like you, 
Every word that comes out of your mouth will be parsed by them, as well as every reaction that you show during the interview. Did you appear evasive during questioning? Were you fidgeting? Did you get defensive? Were there inconsistencies in your answers? These are all cues that you are potentially not being truthful. Now imagine you're a completely innocent person and just nervous as hell because you've never been in this situation and you're hemming and hawing and exhibiting tendencies that most of us show when we're nervous. The cops notice this and many times they will even point it out to you. Boy, you seem extremely nervous. Why is that? Which of course makes you only more nervous as you begin to realize that they may consider you to be a suspect. So yeah, free bit of legal advice. If, God forbid, you're ever in that situation, lawyer up. It doesn't mean you're guilty. It means you're smart. So the boyfriend passes the first test. He showed up. In their eyes, he passed the second test as well because he doesn't have a lawyer with him. Now, they want to see what he has to say for himself. At no point in this interview do I want you to think that I'm bringing you here as a suspect in this, okay? This is merely an informational thing for me, and just so we understand that, that uh, you know, I did call you down, and you're here voluntarily, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not, I don't want this to be anything but informational, okay? Mm -hmm. When I do ask you some questions, which obviously I will, um, you guys discussed a little bit about the, the meth, okay? Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with who you are, what you do in your life, anything like that. My purpose in asking questions along those lines is going to be, is there a possibility that somebody within your circle, Kelly's circle, or around there could have been involved outside of you guys, okay? And so when I ask some questions, I'm going to try to get more information as far as who your contacts, who your people you hung out with, mm -hmm. they have problems with you, Kelly, with Shirley, things like that. Sure. Yeah. Um, just so you understand, and if at any time, you know, I ask a question that may be offensive, just tell me. I don't want to get into a piss and match about it, but just tell me, and I'll and I'll try to ask it. Okay. Sure. So first of all, I, you have the questions about how the investigation is going. Understandable. A lot of information to go through. I'm still going through information that's coming in. So as far as you know, are we on the are we on the track to make an arrest tomorrow? No, obviously not. Okay, but we're still working forward as opposed to looking back at what's been going on, okay? The one question I had for you, were you ever at that house with Shirley, with Kelly, anything like that, that your like fingerprints, any kind of DNA, anything would be in that house? Never in Okay. And that was one question, I don't know if that, I know you provided a DNA sample, yeah. but I don't know if it was ever asked if you were actually in the house. That it wasn't, sense. they didn't ask. Okay. So that makes a big difference as far as sure. what we're checking for. Yeah. Okay. Do you remember um, ever meeting the Hunter family, whether it be Bill Hunter, Claire Hunter, the little boy Thomas, or any of the family? Mm -hmm. Friends with any of the brothers? Because mm -hmm. um, I think they would be probably still younger than you. But uh, any, any kind of com contacts with them, anything like that? Uh -huh. Was other kids were in that lived in the house, or just, just uh, no. There's other family members, though. You know that have possibly moved away. It's just, if you were in, affiliated with them in any way right. outside of that, I guess what I'm asking was, was he the only child that lived in the house? Was there other? I, 
I can't say that for sure because I know one was in college and still might use that as an address. Oh, okay. So um, sure. I know for sure that one was living there. So, but yeah, as far as is that his address, it probably is. You know, the kid, college kids. Mm -hmm. um, but no contact with the hunters. No. Okay. Any kind of contact with um, any kind of cardiology issues, heart issues, that you would have had any kind of contact with Claire Hunter? Because uh -huh. she was a cardiologist she was down at Creighton. No, nothing like that. And as far as any other contacts with Creighton, um, any friends, co-workers, anybody that would be affiliated with Creighton University in any way? No, not Creighton. Okay. No. I, I know you were between Kelly's and your... Kansas address, what type of vehicles you drove or had access to? I had a, an 04 F350 four-door pickup. I had a, a 2000 uh, four-door dually pickup. What, what kind of vehicle is that? That's a Ford, pickup, Ford F350. Okay. Yeah. And, um, Oh, is that the, oh, you had an 04 and an old, a 2000. Okay, got it. Yeah. And a motorcycle, black motorcycle. Okay. What about your ex-wife? Did you drive any of her vehicles? Yeah, she has a, a 2001 Grand Prix, Silver Grand Prix. Do you remember ever renting any vehicles? Um, whether it be from a rental company, from a friend, anything like that, that you would have been associated a, with any other vehicles? I got a loaner pickup when my truck was having service done, but that was that was quite a bit before the murder. Were you ever affiliated with, could you have ever been seen in a Honda CRV by anybody um, that would call us and say, hey, I think Jeff was in a CRV? No, never been no. As far as that Dundee area, do you know, do you, are you familiar with where that is? Have you been by there since this? Since the murders? Yes. Um, not right by the house, but by the, you know, into the street, yeah. Okay, so you know where it is now. Yeah. Prior to that homicide or the date of the homicide, had you ever been to that neighborhood? The neighborhood, yeah, but not not, not actually down that street, so. Okay. So you never dropped Shirley off? Nobody, uh, in, that, nobody in that neighborhood would know who you are, or would they? Would anybody no. recognize you if you've ever been there? No. Okay. Yeah. These chairs do suck. I know. Well, <laughs> and unfortunately, the other room's in use, so I have that scraped it up. So, um, you talked about staying with Jay Hoffman. That's my your brother. brother. Yeah. Now, is that F H O F F M A N? M A N. Okay. Is that um, Blood Brother? Yeah. Yeah. And. Did Jay ever have any kind of vehicle like that as far as a CRV or do you know what kind of No, he's, like, he's had big trucks too, um, Ford trucks. And basically, with your relationship with Shirley, and this is another part, Jeff, by no means am I going to judge you who you are, okay? I understand the violence, I understand the protection orders, I understand all that. He is candid and open with me as he can. Um, it helps me understand a little bit better the relationship dynamic um, as opposed to if you hold back stuff and, you know, then, then there leaves that question, you know, sure. if you guys were at each other every day, I'd rather know that than saying, oh, it was really not that bad, okay? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So when when did you and Kelly start dating? Oh boy. Um, this is two thousand two thousand three, I think. Two thousand two thousand four. Okay. And at that time. She wasn't living at that house on Miami, was she? Mm -hmm. At the 5639? Okay. Yeah, she's been there for 15 years or so. Okay. And was that previous to her daughter? Is it Madison? Is that correct? Yeah. Is it, was it prior to Madison? Uh, Madison was a year old when we started dating. Okay. You know, Shirley lived next door there. Okay. When you started dating, um, did you move in right away, or was it a no, time no, period? No, uh, no, I had my own place. Uh, um, and I, I, I were did, correct, at that time? I was separated, legally separate. separate. Okay. And, uh, I mean, I would stay there for a few days at a time, yeah. But I, I mean, I didn't have much stuff there, no mail there, or anything like that. Okay. Describe to me the relationship with Shirley when you were dating Kelly in the beginning. In the beginning, it was great. I, uh, I actually did some uh, work for her at her house and uh, you know it was really good and uh, then you know Kelly she just she's hard to get along with and I fought with her because I wanted to stay with her and uh, it just escalated Shirley being next door she's seen it all you know? how long do you think it was your relationship with Shirley was in good status oh probably three years so okay three years of good yeah and when you say that you know, the issues with Kelly, what, what, what precipitated, what started the issues, the problems with you guys? She would accuse me of, uh, of uh, trying to be with some other, with other people and uh, um, would assume I was lying, you know, uh, about just where I've been and stuff like that. She was just real suspicious, you know, was, uh, she, she, she admitted it was from her past relationships that made her that way, but she didn't change, you know, and uh, you know, like I said, I wanted to stay with her, so I, I fought with her. And uh, what really ticked Shirley off is when Kelly, I went out to get my phone out of my car and Kelly locked the door behind me. I didn't have any shoes on, it was cold. And uh, when I came back in, I, I kicked the door down. That pissed Shirley off. I fixed it myself, new door and everything, but still, you know. What time period was that? That was probably three years, three or four years into it. Do you wear any reports made or anything like that? Police reports? No, not actually. Okay. So Shirley got mad at that? Yeah. Yeah. Was she mad because of the door being damaged or was she yeah, worried? because of the damage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you feel like she was worried about you hurting Kelly at that point? No, not at that point, no. I, uh, no. Okay. And there was, I think there was some other damage she was accusing me of doing, but uh, I can't remember what it was. It was just, but that's the only thing. There wasn't anything else. There was a like a dent in the back door or something, but it, it I had nothing to do with that. And, you know, I couldn't explain to her any different. You mm -hmm. know, so I just quit trying. Because I know I, I I checked on some you know other reports and stuff, and I think that people were saying, and when I say people, I'm not positive if this was a tip or if this was family. Um, maybe some windows would get broke, some property inside would get broke, anything like that. I never broke a window. No. Okay. Um, do you guys have fights where maybe you threw stuff at each other would get yeah, broken? Yeah, yeah, um, I came in one night and I, my boots were untied and I kicked my boots off. And one 
went up on the dresser and just wiped out all her these perfume bottles. Mm -hmm. And she thought I did it on purpose. I didn't do it on purpose. I was mad, but I didn't do it on purpose. And uh, I think she called the police on that one. Kelly did? Yeah, I think so. And in this time, and, and obviously it escalated up into the incident where you guys, you were trying to get out, whatever. I remember yeah. reading about that. Right, yeah. Um, in that time period when Shirley is now, is she turning the other direction now, not liking you as much? Yeah. Yeah. What was the conversation you guys had? Did she... She just didn't want me over there. She didn't want me there. And, uh, you know, Kelly would argue with her. Because, uh, I mean, these fights were far and in between. We didn't fight a lot. They were just really bad when we did. Mm -hmm. Kelly would argue with her mom that it's not her house. It's, you know, it's Kelly's house. And I could be there if I wanted if she wanted to be there. And, and uh, there was a couple times I just left because I didn't want to see those two go at it. I, I just left, you know. But the time I stayed, she didn't like it. But she would confront you? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> was there any of a physical force in the beginning of this? Between either you towards her or towards you, Shirley. Yeah, did no. she ever push you around? Anything no, like that? I, no, we never really figured out each other. What about Shirley and Kelly? They 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 got into it one time pushing. It didn't have anything to do with me, but they were pushing each other in the living room, and I was taking a nap, and I woke up and went out there and broke it up, you know, and uh, set Kelly on the couch. I said, you know, look at what you're doing here, Kelly. You, know, mm -hmm. you can't do this. But uh, that was the only time I ever seen them, you know. How long ago was that prior to, was that still in the time period after that first three years? Mm -hmm. Or was that towards the Yeah, end? that was pretty early. That was within, that was probably within three years of the relationship, yeah. And I don't know what it had to do with, but it was bad. Did you and Shirley ever, up until the time of her death, ever have any situation where you guys became physical with each other? No. Okay. I didn't, I didn't, I liked Shirley. I had no problem with her. You know, I wanted, I tried to get along with her every time I seen her, you know. But uh, just like her daughter, she's stubborn, you know. She was stubborn as hell. And, you, know, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't make amends to any of that. Majewis is just about to start asking him about his whereabouts on the afternoon of March 13th, which we will hear on the next episode of Defense Diaries. <laughs>